candidly, I look forward to the day where we're allowed to have mediocrity in the Asian community in leadership. I look forward to that day, but we don't have that right now. And the reason why I've always talked about you have to be the best is because you're, you're an example for other people as well. And whenever you're fighting against an institution that has historically excluded people like us, there are people who want you to fail, right? So it's kind of a twofold effect where you have to be successful because you need to prove to your community that it's possible, but also there are people who want to doubt you on purpose um, and you have to prove them wrong as well. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Joe Wynn. Joe is a state senator for the Washington State Legislature, as well as a program manager at Microsoft. As a son of Vietnamese refugees, Joe grew up in an immigrant community and was raised by a single mother. Joe is also one of the few Asian Americans within the state Senate and is passionate about reducing barriers to civic engagement for younger generations. In this episode, we speak with Joe about how he responded to colleagues who mocked his last name in his speech on the Senate floor why there's no space for Asian Americans and other communities of color to settle for mediocrity in systems that have historically excluded them, and how he broke out of a scarcity mindset and embraced an abundance mindset as a child of refugees. Joe, excited to uh, have you on the podcast today. One of the ways that we start off the podcast is by asking our guests what their favorite food was growing up. What was that for you? Oh, first off, thank you so much for having me. It's funny. I was listening to some of the previous podcasts and another person, I think Robbie also said fried rice. So I want to go that route, but I'm going to be a little bit unique. So the correct answer is my mom's fried rice, but I know that that was uh, used by somebody previously. But one of the guilty pleasures that I have from growing up was like really cheap hot dogs, right? So I don't know if you have AMPM where you are, but basically think of like a 7-Eleven hot dog where you get two for a dollar, like just not good for you. And the reason why I think I like those so much, we, we grew up not, not very, not very wealthy, right? We were, we were very, very poor growing up. And where my mom worked, she worked at a, as a seamstress next door was this AMPM. And every once in a while, like we'd go, she'd bring us cause we didn't have childcare and we'd stop and grab some AMPM hot dogs. And that would be our snack. And that was like the only meal that we had that wasn't, you know, rice at home. So the entire time I was like, man, this thing is amazing. Um, so growing up a little bit, you know, I was on a ferry ride. We have ferries in Washington state and they have similar quality hot dogs. And um, I was so pumped and I was eating this hot dog. And my wife was like, what are you doing eating that hot dog? And I was like, I don't know, but this thing is amazing. And I kind of like went back to my memory banks and I was like, this reminds me of growing up and then treat that my mom would give us when we would go with her to her work and we would get this hot dog. So you know, the answer is my mom's fried rice, but honestly, these hot dogs, I don't know what it is. It's just ingrained that they're delicious, even though they're not, but 
it is. <laughs> I'm assuming at that time he hadn't discovered Costco hot dogs yet. No, <laughs> right? Well, I feel like the dollar fifty yeah. for the hot dog at Costco is unbeatable. <laughs> amazing, amazing is what it is. My what's it funny is. Is my son is 19 months. We were actually at Costco yesterday, and he ate one by himself. And I was like, "Yeah, runs in the family." <laughs> <laughs> That's my boy. Yeah. That's great. That that volume food. <laughs> it's where it's at. It's good value. It's a very exactly good value. Joe, I'd love to hear a little more about your upbringing in Washington. So you mentioned that your mother was a seamstress and yeah. I'm assuming that you guys didn't come from a really affluent background. No. Right? So yeah, my mom um, and my father were refugees when they were being evac'd out. My mom was pretty far away, so they couldn't go at the same time. So basically for three years, she had no idea if he was alive or dead because he had evac'd out. There's no text message. There's no email. There's no direct line from you know Washington state to Vietnam. Finally, he was able to send some letters to Japan, Japan to Vietnam. And long story short, they got on a boat and fled in the middle of the night, right? And there's that quote that people have heard, you know, you only, you know, put your kids on a boat when it's safer than, when the water is safer than the land. And it's very much of that dynamic where my mom, you know, went from being a rural farmland, fisher, fisherman village, rice paddy village, and then that, then from there going to the United States. So grew up very, very poor. And, and the reason why we came to Seattle in the first place was because we had access to public housing. So white center, immigrant community, it used to be military barracks. They turned them into immigrant uh, housing, basically. And that's where we grew up. So not, not affluent by any means, but certainly there was a lot of community and a lot of uh, love and, and trust here in Washington state. Joe, one of the things that you've mentioned publicly is the trauma that your parents' generation coming from Vietnam would have had immigrating to the United States or coming as refugees. Can you yeah. talk a little bit more about what that was and, and how it's impact, impacted you or impacted yeah. other folks in your generation? Yeah, no, it's, it's deeply ingrained. And what's funny is that it came to the mainstream this past year. I had a couple of interviews where people were talking about why are there so many Vietnamese Trump supporters? And they're like over the top. And I actually believe it's part of that, right? So if you look at the, the generation that's here now, I think there's a couple of things. First off, there's a cultural thing where when you're fleeing an oppressive government, you, don't, you then you know associate every government as basically being bad. So because Democrats or liberals are technically the party of, you know, government, they're inherently bad. So that's one thing. But also when you, when you learn more about, you know, trauma-informed care, ACEs, if you're a young child, uh, like my, my sister was when she first was a refugee, and even my mom at that age too, the trauma that they were exposed to during a war and then fleeing on a boat in the middle of the night, potentially dying, there's obviously trauma that's there. So I think that that has caused a lot of the issues that we're seeing. So that manifests in things like higher incidences of alcoholism or gambling, uh, gambling, things like that. So there's that trauma, but also kind of in a more germane way, right? Like there's fear, right? And, and oftentimes when you're escaping that type of scenario, there's, there's a huge incentive to not take risk, to stay in your lane. There's that saying, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. And that's certainly uh, uh, systemic to the Vietnamese culture where oftentimes in my life growing up, my mom encouraged us to not be active in things, to not run for student government, to not take a risk because risk to them, you know, you're, you're living in like life or death, right? Like taking a risk is like, you can, you can potentially die if you, if you do something. 
that was their mindset. Obviously to me, it was like, why can't I be student body president? That makes no sense. Mom, you make no sense. But from her perspective, right? Like if she had friends or family that were taken away by the communist regime because they were academics, right? Like, of course she doesn't want them to be taking risks. It's a very interesting case where you see how it impacts their daily lives and impacts our daily lives. And really the, the first time that I recognized it was actually in college, because before then, when you live in that you know, environment your whole life, that's all you know. So you don't know anything is different. I was running for a student body president my junior year of college. And my mom like begged me not to run for student body president of the university, which is, which is kind of funny, right? So like I would tell, you know, my friends that like, oh, I'm going to run, but you know, my mom doesn't want me to do it. It's kind of funny. And they're like, what? That makes no sense. But then when you think about scarcity and you think about fear, you think about their, the culture of which they were, were living in when they came over here, it totally makes sense. So I wasn't fully able to rationalize that, that trauma until honestly recently, but now I see kind of how that has manifested across my life. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a deep rooted scar almost that manifests in so many different parts of life, right? And the one you just mentioned about being less risk seeking and just being more reserved, that's a a way to almost like protect yourself. Yeah. You know, and I'm curious back then, your mom obviously advocated for you to not put yourself out there, not run for office. Yeah. Going through your life thereafter, can you talk to us about? how and when you strategically chose to listen to and not listen to your parents, yeah. right? Because I'm sure there's also a lot of truth and a lot of validity when they're bringing up, especially, um, yeah. you know, for you back then. And, and also now that you're running for office at a state level, that's, you know, leads above a college level. How did your mom react to that? And how yeah. did you navigate that conversation? I, hear, here, I have a good story, but here, the, the other kind of context to my upbringing as well is that my father was in a car accident when I was a kid in the first when I was in the first grade uh, he was in a car accident left him quadriplegic so I think part of it was not just that trauma that my mom had from fleeing Vietnam but also you know my father being quadriplegic 100% brain dead I was his basically his caretaker so I kind of just based off of the timing you know my sister was in charge of taking care of the family while my mom worked my brother, you know, in Asian culture, the firstborn male is a big deal. So he was propped up. So it ended up a lot of that burden was put on my shoulder to take care of some of that stuff as well. But fast forward a little bit. So my first year in the legislature, there's a tradition where after you pass legislation, the governor signs it and it's kind of a big deal. You know, like people come down, you take photos. And I took my mom down to come on this bill signing. So we grew up, you know, on what was called TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families you know, colloquially, it's known as food stamps. And I passed legislation to increase funding for families who were on TANF to help them out because we, we, we benefited tremendously from it. So I come down, you know, we're with the governor, I introduced my mom to the governor of Washington State, Jay Inslee. And he's super nice, very gracious, we have a good relationship. My mom leans over and says, Oh, sorry, Governor Inslee, I know that this is my son's first year, I promise that he'll work harder next year. And I was like, what the heck? I was like, this is the governor. He's not my boss. He's just the governor. I'm like, why would you do that to me, mom? So like, even to the governor of Washington state, you know, she, she felt the need to tiger mom me a little bit, but it's just kind of an interesting dynamic to go from, you know, not really wanting me to get involved to understanding the gravity of the situation to the point where she feels comfortable enough to like apologize on my behalf to the governor. Cause I'm not, and I, I'll just put it out there. I work pretty dang hard. So that was unnecessary. A necessary comment by my mom 
but kind of speaks to uh, speak to the values and like how comfortable she is for me to be in that role now. Yeah. Moms will always keep you in check, even if you don't even need to be in check. (laughs) I I joke how my mom is like such a bully of mine, like in the best way. Like she just keeps me in check. Anytime my ego gets a little bit too high, she'll bring me right back down. (laughs) And so I know, right? I could imagine, I I could totally imagine being in that situation myself too. Uh, Joe, when I was doing a little bit of research uh, for for this podcast, uh, one of the videos that came up was something that was extremely insulting to me. And I can't even imagine how you felt after you watched that or, or saw that live. Can you talk to us about that moment? Can you share a little bit more about what happened and, and how that made you feel? Yeah, so I think the video you're referring to is uh, oftentimes when you give your first speech on the Senate floor, there's kind of a tradition where you, you know, you haze them a little bit. And like, it's usually in jest. It's not anything deeply personal. It's kind of fun, fun banter. But in this case, there was a couple of members who decided to make fun of my last name. And not just make fun of my last name, also say, well, the way that this spelled here, it should be this way. You know, what's interesting is that when it first happened, I was almost kind of numb to it because as an Asian American, you know, you face these things. And and I faced this in elementary school. This is not that different from when I was bullied in elementary school. This is not that different when I was bullied in middle school and, and, and high school as well. And that's kind of where I went back to. And what's funny is that as it was happening, it was very awkward for me, but I didn't really recognize the fact that it was happening until people were texting me that. And like, at that point it wasn't COVID. So there's people in the wings, it was packed and people were pissed. You can hear them, you know, verbally, visibly upset uh, next to me as well. So it didn't register, register until after the fact what was happening. And at that point, I wasn't sure necessarily how, how to deal with it. Right. Because going back to what we we're talking about earlier is, do I stay in my lane? Do I just keep my head down? Do I, do I really want to blow this thing up because what if they hurt me, right? Coming from a mindset of scarcity. But what I ended up doing was I spoke up about it. And and one of the reasons why is because I know that other people were looking at me as well. Other people who look up to me, who want to be in a position like this, were looking up to me. That And like when they make fun of your name like that, it kind of tells you a couple of things where they don't see you as equal, right? They see you as a lesser. If they don't take the time to learn your name or respect your name, I have very little faith that they're going to fight for my issues, champion my community. So it was important for me to speak up because, you know, if it was just me on the playground, maybe I would have just taken it and like it had been done. But if it's me championing my issues for my community, that's a larger conversation that we need to have as a whole. So, you know, it became a thing. Um, talk to that member about it. I think, I don't think they were being malicious per se. I think it was just out of ignorance. But at the same time, that's how you have systemic barriers. That's how you have stereotypes. If people don't challenge the status quo, it compounds on each other. And I need to make sure that they knew that that was inappropriate and not okay. Joe, I want to thread the needle a bit here. You brought up this concept in one of her speeches, or you mentioned something about you can't just show up and exist. You have to be the best Best. at it, the best. And I want to tie this to this idea of the scarcity mindset I hear you bring up because the opposite of that scarcity mindset, like the the diametrically opposed concept is an abundance mindset, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm trying to tie together this idea of like abundance of opportunity, abundance of chances to do things. And this idea of being the best and excelling. Can you tell us a bit more about that and elaborate on that point? Yeah. I actually read a column by Viet Thanh Nguyen, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning Vietnamese author. And, and he called it, well, in the, in the terms that we're using now, a narrative, an abundance of a narrative, right? We don't have the luxury of a narrative. Uh, I happen to be the first person of color in Washington state to represent 
my district, uh, by the way, which is actually a very diverse district. And I happen to be the first Senator in Washington state's history as well. So when I first decided to run for office, I was talking to one of my mentors and she said, Hey, don't F this up. I mean, she's, you know, very close. She said, don't, don't mess this up. And I was like, Oh, interesting. Why? Um, what are you talking about? Like, obviously I'm not going to, but what are you talking about? And, and what she said too, was that because we don't have the luxury of my narrative, your actions reflect the broader community and not even just the Asian community, but like all people of color in general. So there are going to people, there are people who are watching you and they'll say, if you, if you lose, Oh, Senator Wynn or Joe was great. He fought hard, but he lost. So I, I obviously I can't run because I'm not as great as this other person. Or if you were to win, then it's the exact opposite. Now people see that it's possible for them. You're an inspiration, you're a hope. But when you don't have that luxury in a narrative, you oftentimes are the only example of something. And that's why when you come to the legislature or in any position of leadership as an underrepresented minority or just a person that's not necessarily from that background, you have to be not just good, but the best because you are setting that tone for everything else and for anybody else in the future as well. Candidly, I look forward to the day where we're allowed to have mediocrity in the Asian community in leadership. I look forward to that day, but we don't have that right now. And the reason why I've always talked about you have to be the best is because you're, you're an example for other people as well. And whenever you're fighting against an institution that has historically excluded people like us, you know, there are people who want you to fail, right? So it's kind of a twofold effect where you have to be successful because you need to prove to your community that it's possible, but also there are people who want to doubt you on purpose um, and you have to prove them wrong as well. And that's how you have to be successful. That's not the case for everybody, but it is the case for me and for other folks. You know, a lot, one of the topics that we talk about a lot on this podcast is you can't be what you can't see. And so you've mentioned this multiple times of, you know, you're setting a role model for other people to work towards the goals that you've been able to obtain. Do you have like a story of, of someone that you've met in the community that has been, you know, inspired to live towards a profession in government or, or kind of used your story as any inspiration? Like, I, I'm sure that yeah. you run into a lot of community members. Um, curious if you kind of had a story that sticks out with you. No, it's, it's humbling. And there's a few actually. So when I first ran for office, my goal was never to be a Senator, right? Like even when I was running for Senator, people thought that my goal was to become a state Senator. And that was very clear. If you hear some of the comments that I've made previously, I think the mark of a good leader, isn't just what they can accomplish. It's how they empower others to be successful as well. And for me, I happen to be a process oriented person as a PM at Microsoft and I was like, look, there's a lot of issues that I see in leadership and politics. And really what it comes down to is having the right people in the right spot. So my point of running was to be an inspiration so that other folks who I thought were like great leaders would be able to jump into these spots. And after I won, there's a slew of folks that ended up running right afterwards. And, and they worked with you know me and my campaign side, Gramai Zahalai, Sam Cho, other folks, Jeremy Barksdale. There, there are folks who, if you talk to them, like even a year or two ago, they would have not have thought that they would run for office. And not only did they run for office, they won by significant margins and they're crushing it right now as well. So that's what I'm most proud of. But even taking a little bit of a step back, I mean, I had uh, a student send me a DM on Instagram and it was like spirit week at their, at their high school. And, and he was like, I dressed up as you, you're my hero. And he had my glasses and he had like, you know, a black suit and a tie on. And it was just 
it was so humbling, right? Like, you know, it, somebody who still is in high school, seeing themselves in a person in leadership that hasn't been there before, that one really got to me because it was just like, I love that this person felt comfortable enough to send me a note. And I love that that was their inspiration because, you know, it's hard to come by sometimes. I, I remember after I won, one of my heroes is a Supreme Court, uh, uh, Washington State Supreme Court Justice, Mary Yu. And we were having dinner at an event, you know, a week after I was elected. And she came up, gave me a big hug and said, again, big hug before COVID and said, you know, I'm so proud of you. You're, you're making the community so proud. You've done so much. And I was so confused because, you know, I haven't done anything yet. I just, I just won and I haven't actually done anything yet. And it wasn't until the end of that session because of comments by students like that young man who dress up like me and by others who decided to run for office that I realized what she meant was that it was so rare for us to be in leadership that by being able to be in a position to serve like that, that in itself is a huge accomplishment. So that, that, that was a truly humbling experience to start seeing people that you adore and respect, you know, acknowledging your existence and also seeing people who you don't know be inspired by it because that to me was a unique and new role to be in. That's so amazing to hear, Joe. You're the first, but you're not going to be the last, right? No. I think that's the important yeah. point here that you are paving the path for other leaders to become leaders in their own rights, yeah. which is so incredible. And you're also in a way tying this back a bit to the abundance versus scarcity opposition we drew a bit earlier, you're almost guiding folks towards a more abundant mindset where you can, you, you are opening the floodgates for more Asian Americans to be in government as opposed to just being the first and the only there. Yeah. And curious from your perspective, besides creating more representation and showing visually that, hey, there can be more opportunity here. What would be your advice for how folks can shift from a mindset of scarcity to one of abundance? both in career and their own lives, just overall from your own experience? Yeah, it's, I don't know what it was for me. I, I think I was always kind of the black sheep of my family. And just to give you an idea, right? So we have four kids in my family. And I think folks know the stereotype with Asian families, you gotta be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer to be successful, right? So my brother's a doctor, my sister's an engineer, my other sister's an IT professional. So I'm the black sheep because I went into politics. This may sound, this sounds kind of weird, but I, I used to get bullied when I was a kid for being Asian, like very, very young. So I, I kind of rejected my identity for a long time. The reason why I even go by Joe is kind of a manifestation of that versus Tun, my actual name. So for a long time, I just saw how we were treated, we being Asian Americans, we being the AAPI community, and it just made me really frustrated. So, you know, I, I grew up in a household where you had to work pretty hard and, and, and that meant a lot of different things. And I think really it started kind of in high school where, you know, for a long time, I was told that I was never going to be good enough because we were poor. I was immigrant background, person of color, statistically speaking, you're never going to be successful. And then I would go head to head in whatever competition, whether it's an academic competition or whatever, and then win, right? And I'm like, wait, why do I keep getting told that I'm not going to be good enough and told that I should stay in my lane. But then like these folks who are told that they can be in leadership positions, I'm clearly better than them. And I say that with the most amount of humility and respect as possible, but not really because now I've got my way to be a state Senator. I'm literally one step away from being governor of Washington. If I ran for governor of Washington right now, people would say he's ambitious, but they wouldn't write me off. 
right? So it's like, I'm literally at the upper echelons of leadership of Washington State. And I look around and I guarantee you there are more hardworking and talented people where I grew up and where I was, I was a janitor in high school that I, that I went to school with, that I worked with in minimum wage jobs than, than I see at the legislature, right? So I think really what happened for me was in my personality, already feeling like kind of the black sheep, being told that I was not gonna be good enough because of these externalities. And then seeing that that just wasn't true. So I took one step, took another step, took another step. And then the more that I grew, the more that I progressed, realized that these were all just lies. So I just keep pushing. All right, so that, that, that scarcity mindset, being able to break out of it, that having that growth mindset, I think largely was born for me by having a chip on my shoulder, right? Like really wanting to reject that narrative that Asians are submissive. They can't be leaders. They're not, they're not good at being able to, you know, make tough decisions and move forward. Right. So I think a lot of it was just being, you know, told to be in my lane for so long that as I started to deviate from that lane and finding some success, realizing that we were just being gaslighted or gaslit the whole time. And that we, we ourselves were kind of holding ourselves back. And we can certainly be more successful than we, than we wanted to be or than, than we thought that we could be if we were to take that risk. So I think that's kind, of, that's kind of where it happened was just like being frustrated as a young person, being told that I couldn't do something. And then the people who were being told that they can do something were to me like mediocre and just wanted to prove them wrong. And that's kind of how we got to where we are now. Like even when I was running for office, it wasn't necessarily because of, you know, me being an Asian by any means, but was told that I wasn't going to be able to win. I wasn't going to be able to raise enough money. I won't have any endorsements. Right. And they were right two out of the three times, but I crushed them. I didn't raise as much money. I didn't have any endorsements, but I was able to win. So it was kind of those dynamics where whether it's in the Asian culture or otherwise, you know, people default to, you know, stay in your lane, keep your head down don't try to go and do these outlandish things because you can fail. And for me, I just wanted to prove people wrong because as I fundamentally saw that in our system, it was not working how I thought it should be working. And if folks weren't going to change it, I'm just going to go ahead and do it myself. And, and so far it's worked out. Joe, could you touch a little bit more about the different nuances you see between the, the private sector and the public sector? And, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I really want you to, I really want you to talk about how to get more, young people into into the public yeah. sector and, and why why that doesn't happen today like why, why does everybody want to get a job at like a big investment bank or consulting company or like a big tech company um, oh man here how do we get more people how do we get more people into into the government it's first off it's tough right so here i'll touch upon the simulators uh if you look so like i work in tech right so i inherently i'm very comfortable with technology when we first got to the legislature when i say we it's me and my team I noticed, well, first off, I, I deconstructed the legislative process. So I really wanted to understand from a process flow, basically like a visual chart of how the legislative process works. And I just noticed that there was tons of inefficiencies. And I noticed that a lot of the staff would spend, you know, six, seven hours a day, basically scheduling meetings on behalf of the member. And I was like, this is stupid. Why don't they just use Calendly? Like, like the same way you'd book your haircut is how you should book these, these meetings. So what's interesting is that when we came in, you know, we implemented this technology. So we use Calendly to schedule meetings. I hooked up my Outlook to Power BI. So that way I can see what kind of emails are coming in and makes it easier to mail merge and send stuff back. And then I also set up my office as if it was a startup kind of break room with coffee and an Xbox and a TV and stuff like that. So we changed the paradigm of how it looked to be a Senator. 
And the reason why I say that is because if you see the, the folks who come visit you, young people, students, uh, high school students, elementary students, most of the times when they come, they're met with a very stuffy office with a desk that blocks you. And then you get introduced to the member who takes you into this giant room and it's very intimidating. And by the time you get there, you don't feel like that space was meant for you to be there. It's meant to intimidate you. And we wanna do the exact opposite. We wanted to make sure people felt comfortable, that they were welcomed, that it was familiar for them. So we have snacks, we have video games, we have coffee. And then I would even play, you know, on, on Netflix, they have what's called moving art, where it's just like a very calming visuals and audio. So by the time that they came and talked to me, it was all good. It was chill. Everybody was like all set. They're in the right mindset. So for me to get more people involved, they needed to see themselves there and they need to feel familiar and welcomed in that space. That's one. The other one is it is damn near impossible to get young people involved in politics in this level is because you either have to be independently wealthy or retired to be able to serve, right? So when I say I'm a part-time legislator, that comes with a part-time salary and I have three kids. I live in Seattle, not necessarily the cheapest place. I would not be able to afford to be in the legislature and also live in Seattle. So the only way to get more younger people involved is if you have some of these supports that are there. We're always gonna have that problem, right? So I'm one of two millennials in the entire legislature right now. And it's because of that dynamic is that it's just not feasible for, for somebody to be there. But what I, what I will say is that the way that we get more people involved is first off, engage them on policies. So I happen to do a lot of the technology policies, the climate change policies, stuff like that, just because that happens to be my background, but also things that I care about. So I think one of the biggest things is start bringing up issues that are important to these communities. One thing about the legislature is that we see about three or 4,000 bills in any given year. So there's about three or 4,000 bills that get introduced, but we only pass about two to 300. So less than 10% of the bills that we see uh, actually get passed. And what that means is that oftentimes people think that politics is about right or wrong, Democrats versus Republicans, whatever. It's, that's actually not the case. It's making sure that your issue is worthy of being discussed. So a lot of the things that we care about oftentimes aren't discussed is because the folks who are there have a very different perspective, very different mindset. So being active and proactive in terms of what we care about and what we are putting forth, I think that's one of the key things. And honestly, even for me, like as a Vietnamese person, my last name is the most popular last name in King County, right? The most popular last name in King County. But that was the first time somebody saw that on a ballot. So, you know, it's the whole gambit is, you know, you need to have representation. You need to create an environment that people feel welcomed to be a part of. And you need to start prioritizing the issues that people care about from these communities because they weren't prioritized before. And more systemically, if you want folks to be in these leadership roles, you got to be able to help pay, pay them. So for me, what we do is our internships are paid. Oftentimes on the campaign side, we're very proactive about that as well, is that you want to be able to give people the experience. And I'm very intentional about ensuring that we're building a pipeline of leaders and not just, you know, perpetuating the system that was kind of there before. Be it in governance or at Microsoft, what I'm hearing from you is that your career doesn't really define you anymore as a person. It's more yeah. the means to the end of serving your community is what you're, you're trying to achieve, right? Be it through paying it forward, literally to your interns, <laughs> or you mentioned earlier that your first bill that you passed in Senate was to support something that your family had benefited from while you're yeah. growing up in the U.S., you know? So to bring it full circle a bit, Joe... I love to hear about how your identity has impacted your approach to governing and how that should look like going forward. 
And moreover, thinking about your political legacy too, what would you like to be defined by if your career isn't the thing that defines you? You know, what's interesting is the identity in a similar article uh, when they were making fun of my last name, there was a subsequent profile in Huffington Post as well. And going back to the stereotype of being an Asian American, being quiet and submissive, and me fundamentally rejecting that premise, that's kind of how I've operated in the past couple of years is that I didn't want to be known as the quiet, submissive person that was just going to perpetuate the status quo. So, you know, if you look at some of the language that I use in some of these interviews, it's probably more aggressive than what you would expect in general, not just from an Asian American, but just in, from a politician in general. And, and the reason why I do that is, is that I wanted to show folks in the legacy is that you can be authentically yourself. You can bring yourself to this space. And it's no longer your job to conform to a space that wasn't built for you. You can help shape that, right? So I think that's one of the legacies. And the way that my identity kind of plays into it is that acknowledging the fact that not everybody is as progressive or as well-read about the Asian culture and that there are still people who don't really understand beyond the stereotypes. So I think the way that my identity has played in, it's been kind of twofold, is understanding that there are pros and there's cons. I wanted to break down some of those barriers that have been put on, on Asian Americans in the past. Um, but the other one was also to acknowledge and recognize and really see a lot of these young people who are now getting more engaged. You know, a few years ago, I, I am very progressive and I, and I didn't realize that there were other progressive Vietnamese people because the only ones that I saw were, were very conservative and had, that, that had a mindset that was very similar in that space. So the first time I saw other progressive Vietnamese people start to coalesce as well. And just showing that there's more to us than just the stereotypes that you see. So it's interesting bringing up the identity piece because mine was fundamentally trying to reject the identity that was imposed upon me through these stereotypes and being able to prove and to show that there's other uh, perspectives that are out there as well. Joe, we usually wrap with a career advice question, but I think that's an awesome way to end it there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, you provided uh, so many pieces of wisdom. Yeah, you were so vulnerable in sharing your story from your upbringing, your parents, how that's now impacted your governing style and, and also the legacy you want to leave. Really appreciate your time, Joe. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.